You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Believe it or not, having a lawn is a controversial topic. There are actually people out there that will tell you that there's no value in a lawn whatsoever and that you're much better off removing it in favour of an edible or a native garden. Is this the truth, or are there certain places where lawns are good for humans and the wider ecosystem? And what are the industry best practices that we should apply to our lawns in order to get the most out of them? In this episode, we're lucky enough to have two Western Australian lawn legends on the show. Nick Bell and Tony DeMassey. Nick has an extensive history in horticulture, including with sites such as the Western Australian Cricket Association, or the WACA as it's better known, and has also presented on Channel 9's Gardening WA. Tony runs a turf farm called Permanent Brook Turf and has been working with Nick for many years. I have to apologise for the audio on my end of this conversation, which, due to a technical error, had to be recorded through a different microphone than I usually use. So welcome to the show, Buzz. Oh, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yes, thank you. It's a beautiful farm, all right. We've just looked at the live grass on display and the machine that was used to plant it. So we're all ready to talk to you about it. And you want to ask me about what some people think the lawns are of no value. Yeah. So I guess uh, I've... I have a Twitter account where I like to ask my followers questions. And something I asked a while ago was, you know, what do you guys think about lawns? And I was really sort of surprised to hear some of the answers that came back. There are sort of a lot of people out there that think that a lawn brings no value whatsoever and that you should always replace it with edible or native plants. So I guess what value do grassy areas bring to people, soil health and the wider ecosystem? Look, live turf provides a safe sanctuary for children and pets to play on. It, it lessens the sound and it uh, reduces the heat. And it's just such a good thing to have. It's the, the carpet of the outdoor living. Now, I understand that not everybody wants a lawn, but it's very, very minor people would be better off with a shrubby. Lawn is a real asset to any house. Totally. And what about you, Tony? What do you think about that? Uh, I, I endorse his thoughts because uh, basically you can have, a, as I was mentioning earlier, you can have a million dollar or $10 million property that's just got some sand or perhaps some native plants or whatever. But if you've got a beautiful green luscious lawn looking in front of the, of the house, it's going to basically add quite a bit of value to that property because it looks pretty bland without some nice greenery, especially some beautiful lawn in front of it. And it's sort of hard to kick a footy on a sandy patch or even on a veggie garden as well. Absolutely, unless you want to get dirty and a few scars. That's right. So something I've heard people say is that lawns are something that don't occur in nature. I mean, are we talking about something that's totally unnatural here when we talk about lawns? Absolutely not, Daniel. Look, lawn, the very word lawn, comes from middle age, 
the Middle Ages in England, they meant the close cultivated land surrounding a house used to keep the animals away from the house and provided clear vision to and from the house. They're a very natural thing that have been here since the Middle Ages and even further back in Australia. Australian Aboriginals used to manage the grass for fire stick farming on the banks of the Swan River long before any white settlers came to live in Australia. So they're completely natural. Not to mention, you know, sort of grazing lands for herbivorous animals. Well, fire stick farming, the Aboriginals used to burn the, burn the grass that was, you know, steeping down to the river in the, in the autumn. The grass would, in the springtime, the grass would start to regenerate. Kangaroos and other animals would come eating the young succulent grass. And that's how they lived. And that was, when that was done, they would move to another area. So it was an ever-changing, important part of the ecology of Australia. And it still is. And I mean, when we're talking about lawns, you know, these are really grassy patches. And grass is absolutely a natural plant that, you know, we may have cultivated, but it does exist in nature and it provides a food source for an incredible range of animals, not just sort of ruminant animals like cows and buffalo and stuff like that. But there are also soil microbes. There are also a range of insects and other sort of things. You know, you've got birds eating the grains out of the lawn. You know, when I mow a lawn, I often see magpies and stuff like that come along and, you know, sort of pick the worms out. And I sort of would argue that it's something that is very natural. It's living. You know, it reduces heat. It feeds the microbes in the soil. Everywhere in the world where there's grass, the soil is better. It's naturally improved yes. soil as a percentage of the roots and the detritus from the grass dies and decomposes and feeds the soil. It's a living composting, but more close. It's a beautiful welcoming match in most homes. It also encourages things like uh, earthworms, which are very good for the soil. As you mentioned earlier regarding the uh, magpies, not only magpies, crows, and uh, if ducks go across there, they get the benefit of it as well. So it's, it's, it's fantastic to the nature. Yeah, totally agree. And when you think of it, how did grass come to Australia? There are a few native grasses, but things like cooch and kaikuyu came here in the bellies of birds. You know, they would feed in South Africa, fly to Australia, do their business along the creeks and riverbeds, and the grass would, would strike so that uh, it might not be indigenous, but it's a very happy migrant, early migrant to Australian shores. So it's a purely natural thing, honestly. It's just it's so natural. I tell you what, when you cut grass and you can smell the grass, it makes you feel better. Absolutely. The smell of grass is something that I hear a lot of people sort of comment on. Uh, it's kind of funny in that as a maintenance gardener, I barely even notice the smell anymore. Yes, that's true, but that's because you've been doing it for quite a while. So I guess I guess you do get used to it. For somebody that's just beginning to do it, perhaps they would notice it straight away, but then they, they would begin to really love that beautiful smell and know that it's part of nature. Absolutely. Something I've heard is that when you can smell that smell of the grass, that's actually a stress response from the plant and it's sort of saying like, hey, something's eating me, and it's telling all the other grass around, hey, make yourself distasteful so that this herbivore moves along. And, I mean, that, that's not to say that we're being cruel to the grass or anything at all because 
if you're mowing the grass, especially if you're mulching it, you're actually feeding that soil as well. So, I mean, that grass should actually be quite happy that it's being eaten at the end of the day. Tony, it's like cutting your fingernails. You just, you know, everybody knows that you should never take more than one third of the leaf off the grass in one mowing. So you're just tipping it. The grass clippings yes. return to the soil. They, they return 30% of the last fertilizer and 10% of the last water. You know, so you reduce mowing, reduce watering, and reduce fertilizing. You're feeding the soil to look after the grass. Totally. Not to mention you're also sequestering carbon by mulching. That's right. It provides carbon. It provides oxygen. It feeds the microbes. It's a living, breathing, um, if you like, oasis. Absolutely. When we are mowing the grass and we're sort of taking away those clippings, and let's say we're not going to feed the lawn after that, essentially what we're doing is we're actually mining the soil for nutrients because that grass is taking up nutrients out of the soil, putting it into its body, into its leaves, and then when we remove that, we're essentially, like I said, we're mining the soil for nutrients and minerals. I call it grass cycling. You return the grass clippings to the, to the lawn. You don't need to pick them up because you mow frequently. So you're just taking a very small clipping off. And it, 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 absolutely, it's organically feeding the lawn. No waste, no cottage to the tip. Absolutely. So in your opinion, what roles do a lawn best play sort of specifically in a home garden? I think it provides a safe sanctuary for children and pets to play. You know, and there's nothing more than a young child getting, getting eye-to-hand coordination by handling tennis balls and balls and footballs, playing with the parents or the big, or the big brothers, the big sisters in the garden in a safe environment. So I think it's, uh, that's the most important thing that it does. And a good lawn enhances the home garden landscape. It doesn't, it doesn't dominate it, but it enhances the rest of the landscape. And it's like the sort of centerpiece. You can see it. It's the centerpiece of the home garden landscape. I think also you'll find that um, if you've got a nice lawn, which well, most lawns are very nice lawns, and you'll find that it also is a beautiful cooling effect to the, to the backyard um, and children love to play on something that's nice and cool. They don't want to be on sand where they're getting burnt and there are other, other, other items too that cause burning. But if you've got a lovely lawn, it's, it's nice and cool. It, it, it puts nice things back into the earth and it, it's just a fantastic thing for the ecosystem. Totally agree. What are the main turf varieties that are available in Australia and what are some of their strengths and weaknesses? Well, we're talking about Western Australia because the different parts of Australia are entirely different. You want warm season grasses, stoloniferous and uh, rhizometrous grasses that are really well suited. And there are a few that I mentioned. The softleaf buffalo grass, which is very popular. It's couch grass which is very popular. The Santa Ana grass, which is a hybrid between South African fine-leaf grass and common grass, and that is superb. That is the best. Requires less inputs, only requires four to five hours of direct sunlight daily, and can be maintained at a cutting height of 10 to 12 millimetres all year round. 
There's carcuya grass. Now, carcuya is not like the wild carcuyas that people remember from years back. Very fine carcuya grass with close internodes. And very, if you've got a dog and you have heavy use, carcuya is a good choice in some, some situations. It's got excellent disease and pest resistance. And it only requires for five or six hours of direct sunlight a day. Zoysia is a fairly new grass. That's very popular too. It's proved, you know, in Western Australia we're fortunate enough to have some very good turf farmers. Most of these men and women with turf farmers have been to California, they've been to Florida, they've been to South Africa. They've studied which are the best grasses in similar climates and they brought the best of them back to Perth and they've grown them in their nurseries assess them over two years, satisfy themselves that they're good here, and they promote them. And Zoysia is one of those products. It's soft, it's non-irritant, it's excellent resistance to weeds, it's got good cold weather hardiness, and it doesn't require a lot of mowing. You need to cut that a bit higher, from 14 to 21 millimetres year-round. And the final one that's really suited to Western Australia is Queensland Blue. No, some, it's often called Queensland blue kush, but it's not really. It's a different species. But Queensland, blue, Queensland blue is very popular. One of its drawbacks is it doesn't have any rhizomes, so it's not very hard wearing. If you lose a piece in the middle of your lawn, it takes a long time to come back. It requires five to six hours of sunlight, cutting out of 10 to, 10 to 30 millimetres year round. And that's very important, you know, because... You talk about the frequency of mowing. If your lawn is being cut by a contractor or independent lawn, lawn you know, one of the lawn mowing franchises like VIP or gyms or ProCut or the independent ones, they've got very good equipment. They're very efficient in what they do. But they're not going to come. You're not going to afford to have them come, come twice a week in the growth of the summer. But on the small lawns that you have in today's new developments, of 50 to 60 square metres, you can cut them beautifully with a hand push people-powered cylinder mower that keeps them better than the, than the synthetic fake lawns that people have installed just because they think they're going to look good forever. So there's a choice of five warm season grasses that are all very suitable for Western Australia. And it's providing that the, the soil has been properly prepared and you've got the means of efficiently watering them. Look, they're foolproof, they're as tough as old leather. So we're talking about more than just an aesthetic choice when we're talking about the differences between the grasses. That's right. If you've got a dog, you've got heavy wear, you use one that's got strong rhizomes for quick recovery. If you've got something that you want, like a, a billiard or a pool table top, you use Sandrana. Queensland Blue is also a, a, a very good choice of lawn. And Kaikuyu, very hard wearing. And then the softleaf buffalo, Probably better if you're in dense shade. Well, the, the fact is that buffalo requires about two to four hours of direct sunlight. So it requires less sunlight than the other lawns. So you see, with shade, you've got less sunlight. What do you reckon about the differences between those sort of grasses, Tony? I, personally, I think, um, obviously, uh, I, I, I have a uh, Santa Ana favouring. But as far as the lawns go, all of those warm season grasses that we do have here, I think they're all very, very positive to have. Um, they, they don't have any, any major issues with heat. We don't have that heat island effect with the grasses that you can get sometimes when you have some 
uh, when you get some uh, synthetic type based lawns and it, it's it's just a better atmosphere for children sporting activities to to happen um, it's overall I think it's just any one of them are, are great to have um, but there are horses for courses and I, I think that um, if you do have that small area or a reasonable area that you can maintain satisfactory, I do agree. Santa Ana is definitely beautiful. It's just a magnificent lawn. Um, it's soft. If you've got babies or, or small children, then it's perfect for that environment. It doesn't seem to have too many allergies attached to it at all. Um, if you've got a larger open space type area, then the Kaikuyu would be okay if you had quite an, a large area. And if you've got, say, a large, if, you, if you've got a very large area, also you could use buffaloes. And the zoysias are very good too. All of those grasses are good. Any one of those warm season grasses are definitely great to have in your backyard. And as, as I said before, they enhance your property. Absolutely. So if you're getting rid of the grasses on your land, you're shooting yourself in the foot because your property prices are going to go down. Correct. Post by your own patal. Correct. I mean, it's <laughs> it's been proven over and over again that uh, if you have a, a very nice, well-maintained lawn, and that's quite easy to do if you just follow some simple directions, that your property value will increase, especially if you're looking at selling that property, not only just keeping it but selling it in the future. A beautiful green lawn using any one of those products Will, will be a very good seller. Absolutely. You know, lawns should not be rectangular. They can be a sort of roughly circular with curving lines. You know, about 60 square metres in front of a house really is a welcome mat. It's, uh, it looks so good, but there's one, one grass that I'd add. If you're in dense shade in a courtyard, dichondra, superb, kidney leaf shapes, uh, grows summer and winter and uh, grows well and wonderful for put where you've got brick slip paving. You can put them between the cracks of the brick papers and it takes the harshness off them and looks green. So that's one that you get out for very shady courtyards. Nick, you mentioned there that rectangular lawns are not always probably the best way to go. Can you speak about why some of those other shapes are going to be more interesting, especially if they have some curves in them? Well, I'm think, just thinking artistically. You look at a rectangle, a square box, or an oblong. Not very interesting. But you look at an artist's palette. Nice curved shape. Generally can be surrounded by trees and shrubs, a rose bed, a native, or a bed of animals. So I'm saying that's where it's complementing the landscape. So the curvaceous, roughly circular lawn is much more aesthetically appealing in my view, than the, you know, the, the rather sterile square or oblong. How do you recommend partnering up the lawn against a garden bed? Are there sort of any edging that you can put there or do you just put it straight against the mulch or against the soil in your garden bed? Look, you can't put mower strips. You can make concrete mower strips. You know, there's all sorts of material to make for edging. But I prefer a clean-cut edge with a sharpened spade, particularly in these small lawn areas, a sharpened spade going around the edge of the, perim the perimeter of the lawn, you're getting a nice decisive edge, 
And then if a runner comes across, you can snip it off. If you've got a, a brick paving or, or even a concrete slab, some of the grasses, they're pretty cunning. They'll find a way of burrowing underneath and they'll come up on the other side. But it's easy to maintain with a once a month clean up around the edges with a sharp spade or an edging tool. But uh, we'll talk about more later, Daniel, but you know, not everybody can afford an electric car. And I'm very big on electric lawnmowers and electric lawn tools, so we'll talk about that later. Sounds great. When you're talking about the spade edge as a professional maintenance gardener, I'd probably use an upright cut using a brush cutter. And I'd find that probably quicker than using a spade, but not everybody is able to do that efficiently. A spade edge is probably going to be the best way for a home gardener. They can if they take the time to learn it. Nobody becomes expert from one, one go. I mean, I've seen Jimmy's mowing and VIP mowing and independent contractors mowing with those whippersnappers, and they do a wonderful job. And then they sweep it up clean, clean, clean afterwards. But I'm looking at the, the, quarter, the quarter acre, thousand square meter house, and I have gone forever. We're now talking about a 400, 400 square meter block and a 300 square meter house. And when you put your concrete drive and your swimming pool, your trampoline, there's not much room for a lawn and garden. So I'm saying, let the guy, let the woman, let the children become their own greenkeepers. Let's get back to making you putting your imprint as well as your front footprint on your own home. Well, you put me out of a job. No, 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 I don't know. <laughs> it's, I think it's all down to affordability and it's not putting anybody out of a job, really. I mean, the thing is, if you can educate somebody to actually do that, do those edges, even in between the mowing times that the contractors do it, uh, and if they enjoy doing it, it it's, it, it's a total maintenance situation where everything becomes better overall. Daniel, I'm very impressed with, with people like Jim's. Um, over the years, I've had a lot to do with Jim's mowing operators. They're well-trained. They've got very good quality machinery. And they, you know, their business is only as good as the last loan they cut. So most of them do an excellent job. And one thing about them, you know, is guaranteed that the mowers are sharp. But when I'm talking about a 40 square meter lawn, you don't want to pay 80 to $90 to do 10 minutes worth of, worth of work. One in three weeks when you really need to cut them every two or, three, two or three times a week. So that's where we're talking about being your own greenkeeper. You know, with a $250 hand push, heavy cylinder mower, self-sharpening cylinder mower exercise, you go out and do it, do it in 10 minutes. But there's always room for professionals because there's a lot of big lawns around the place, a lot of schoolyards, a lot of semi-commercial premises, you know, and it's very important that they're done properly. But I'm concentrating here on the big house and the small lot and the person who should have a, a live lawn instead of a fake lawn, which are an environmental disaster. Can you speak on that, Nick? What do you mean when you say fake lawns are an environmental disaster? Well, they cost such a lot of money to make, such a lot of energy to produce, such a lot of transport miles to get here, and a relatively short lifespan. After 10 years, they're dug up, put in the tip, or they're very slow to, comp to compost. And they do nothing about reducing the heat or improving the environment or providing a hot place. I I've been 
in one of these new cells when the temperature's been 36 degrees, and you can't even walk on them. So if that's not an environmental disaster, what is? There will be some places where they're worthwhile. But people shouldn't use them instead of lawn because they think it's going to be cheaper. That's just because they're being forced to believe. You can imagine if you're in a new suburb where 70% of these of the lawns are fake, they think that's what, that's what you've got to do. But it's just because they don't know how to do it better. But I'll tell you, a properly groomed sand around the grass is much, much better. And when the weeds pop through and you sort of spray those weeds and there's dead weeds sitting on top of that fake turf, they can look pretty ugly as well. Oh, you can get a number of issues besides just the weeds with regards to that. You, you also, there are times where you can get also mould come into it if it gets too saturated. Uh, if the dogs and the, or the animals do their business on there, uh, that, that causes a bit of an issue as well. So unfortunately, people get misled and have the wrong idea with regards to this because uh, it's not just a... A, f a fake lawn is not something that you just leave, set and forget. Um, th there are a number of issues that you have to deal with. And also, uh, if you want to keep it cool, uh, keep it cool, you need to put water. Um, so unless you're prepared to walk on, you know, lava. So uh, that there are associated issues with fake lawns as well. So they're not, everything's not just straightforward compared to your normal lawns, your beautiful uh, warm season lawns, um, it, it's far better for the environment. It's, it's better for, for uh, humans to enjoy their time. It's good, totally good for the ecosystem. Uh, there's so many fantastic benefits to do with a natural lawn. Absolutely. So we're talking about sequestering carbon here with a natural lawn instead of sort of sequestering microplastics. Correct. Well, the thing is, if you take a fake lawn to the tip, how's it going to decompose? And you have to, you have to look at what, what all, the, all the bad things that come out of, basically it's recycled. It's a recycled product. Oh. So there are, this is the problem that we do have. And getting, getting rid of the product is also a, an issue. Um, getting rid of uh, if you have to re renovate your lawn or redo your lawn at some stage, you know that it's putting something nice back into the nature once it goes to a different place. <laughs> Daniel, when a, carpet, when a carpet in the house gets threadbare and worn, you replace it. The same thing happens to a synthetic or a fake lawn. When it becomes no longer attractive or durable or it's full of weeds and looks unsightly, you take it to the tip. But a real lawn, a live living lawn, just gets better every year. And it recycles nutrients back into the earth and provides a safe, secure sanctuary for children and pets to play. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more, like, honestly. I mean, I, I, I'm at a loss for words. I can't understand how anybody would want to have fake lawn at the back, especially if they've got kids that want to kick a footy. I mean, if you've ever dived on fake lawn before, you know it hurts. Well, I can tell you it hurts. I used to play hockey once, and um, you do get a few, a few few scratches from it when you do fall on it. So, Daniel, my granddaughter's got a fancy apartment near near the near Perth, about seven miles from Perth, 
beautiful apartments surrounding uh, the, the river and, and, and a little stream going into the Swan River. And it's surrounded by acres or, or many square meters of artificial turf. Looks right from the window. In a hot day, the kids won't play on it. It's just too hot. You know, so it defeats the whole purpose of having one. But I'm not here to knock the artificial turf. I just want to explain to people how much better it is to have a live turf and if they know how to do it properly, starting with the preparation of the soil, they're not going to have any problems. And it's not going to cost them an arm and a leg. It's going to cost them less than $10 a week to water. So playing a devil's advocate then, when would you say artificial turf does have a good purpose? In a car yard, perhaps a used car yard or a, a car, <laughs> car sales room where, you know, where they haven't got time to be watering because they spoil the freshly polished cars and the pretty narrow strips across the roadway. I can see that. So I see it being better than brick paving in those areas and an acceptable ground cover for that situation. But And there may be, there may be others legitimately, but I can't emphasise enough. People who put fake lawns in new developments don't do it because they want a fake or a synthetic lawn. They do it because they want a good lawn, they want the place to look nice, without a lot of maintenance, and they just haven't been taught that you can achieve that much better with a never-living live lawn. And there's none better for that situation. Anywhere you use artificial turf, providing you've got three or four hours of sunlight, Santa Ana is absolutely the key. So, guys... We've sort of talked about how the lawn is almost like the centerpiece, but it's not necessarily the only part of a garden. So let's say we've got a large parcel of land and a lot of it's lawn. When would you recommend downsizing the lawn? Well, I think it's already basically downsized as it is now due to the uh, property sizes. I mean, if you go back 15 to 20 years ago, I mean, property sizes were already at a reasonable size and and pretty much I think it's you've answered the question just by the selling of properties now in, in subdivisions and that most of those properties now where we used to have, you know, one to 200 square metre lawns are now down to about 40 square metres or 50 square metres and some even 20 to 30. So I think downsizing's already been occurred as a result of subdivisions and obviously government has something to do with that as well. And I think, Daniel, where you can downsize legitimately and sensibly is on the sides of the house where you've got a two or three metre strip running to the front and the back. You can put raised garden beds in there, which I think is essential for a growing family to learn how to grow food, grow their own tomatoes, grow their own lettuce, grow their own kale, take the joy of sowing seeds and seeing them germinate and then see them grow. You know, particularly young children that can plant radishes one day, radish seeds, and within three weeks later they can pick them and say, Mum, would you put this in my lunchbox, please? So I think every garden, no matter how small, should have an area for a small garden. And areas where people, are, people aren't going to play. We've talked about the importance of being the outdoor recreation centre of a family, where they're not going to provide a functional use. I would use it, use it to put a rose bed, a, a, a bed of brightly coloured, attractive flowers that you can bring indoors. You know, so I do, that's, I think, the legitimate reason for downsizing. Maybe you want to put a veggie patch in that's not a raised bed, that's just a full-on 
sort of veggie patch. Well, people do that, you know, if you, if you talk to to Josh Byrne, he, he's got a lovely street verse, which is part native grass and part vegetables. But I'm talking about the majority of people. They want a nice lawn, but they should make room for a, for a garden and learn how to garden. See, when I was young, my dad gardened and I watched him and I learned how to do it. A lot of children, children don't, today don't know that, they haven't had that experience. We get into the new house and we say, what am I going to do? Well, I'm saying to those people, go to the local nursery, take your house plan, measure the distance from the house to the sides of the property and ask them to tell you what plants, what, what, what's the best plants to grow. And they should not just ask for the advice, they should think of all the plants that they really like themselves. Think of plants that other people in the neighbourhood grow, that grow, that they admire. Think of plants that mean something to you. If your mother or your grandmother loved a, a, a hibiscus or, or loved a you know, particular shrub, put one of those in. Keep their memories alive in your garden. So there's lots of things you can do to landscape. It's, so it's not just law. A good law, as I've said, complements. It doesn't dominate the home garden landscape. So you can downsize to have a harmonious garden and fulfills many purposes as well as the law. Completely agree. I think also that if you've got a totally shaded situation where a lot of these smaller blocks that we have today uh, that are around the two to 400 square metre areas with just minimal areas for gardens, um, there are a number of people that attempt to put some lawns in those totally shaded areas and... I think in that case, I wouldn't be putting lawn there because you're defeating the purpose of a very good lawn. So uh, there are certain spots that you can downsize uh, with regards if that was a shaded area, total shaded area, um, because some of the lawns do take part shade. But if it's total shade, then perhaps there are other alternatives like like shrubs, landscaping in other ways. Or a veggie pot. Or veggies. Or a greenhouse. Extend the garden experience because once young people from sort of 50 year old or even younger get their hands in the earth and produce some, they're hooked. They want to enjoy their garden. We're going to talk shortly about, uh, you know, the Aboriginal system, how they had six planting seasons. Do you know how they love their land? It's because they belong to it. The land belongs to them. So no no matter how small your house, you make that belong to you. And the moment that you start cultivating the soil to, to have your turf laid or laid yourself, it becomes your property and you develop this loving for your, for your land. Absolutely. Nick, you mentioned there about Aboriginal people and their sort of way of thinking about plant care. I mean, in Australia, we're very used to working within the four-season system that we've inherited from Europe. Can you tell us a little bit about how the Noongar people from in your area, how did they work with the seasons? Well, they have six seasons instead of four. It starts off the first in summer, it's called Birak. And then the second summer, which is February and March, they've got Boonaroo. Autumn, April and May, which we're living in right now, is a season of adulthood. That's when the weather starts to cool down, as we all know. That's when you can do things in the garden. So I've developed a normal six-season lawn care program, which is 
all about how you what you do in each of those six seasons. We really do, but we just don't call it that. I mean, we have early summer and midsummer. We have late winter and early winter. But they have the, the six seasons I've told you about. And it divides the year into six easy-to-manage places. And they've thought about it for centuries. And I should say that I've done a lot of study of this, and I, I have permission to use the lunar seasonal calendar, which is granted by the Southwest Aboriginal Land and Sea Council. So we're taking, or they're taking us with them. We're not telling them how to suck eggs. We're learning from the past and using their principles to grow better gardens. You know, they generally require much less fertilizer and more remainders because you're doing things at the right time of the year rather than when it suits somebody else's timetable or calendar. Well, that just makes sense, right? I mean, why would we be using a calendar that doesn't work in our area? I mean, obviously, we should be taking cues from the people who've been living here a lot longer than sort of like the European way. I think that Australia's most underutilised resource, not that I want to call a human being a resource, but I mean they're not sufficiently valued. And their love and care for the land long before white came, people came here is remarkable. They're fire stick farming. I've done a lot of study into, into how they did it. So it's not just words. They actually did it. They know how to do it. So I like to think that whether you came on the first fleet or whether your ancestors were here 50,000 years ago or whether you're going to fly in on a jumbo jet tomorrow, we're all sharing this land together. And it's most important to respect and value everybody and recognize the special skills that some people have. Totally agree. And that's, my legacy. that's going to be my legacy, you know, when I retire. I'll be 85 years old in May. I've retired from full-time professional work, but I've just started my career as a sharer of knowledge to help people have better lawns. And I'm enjoying that. It's a pleasure. I'm glad to be here with my nephew, Tony, today because he and I started one of the first turf farms in Australia, in, in Western Australia together. And the grass we chose was Santa Ana because it does better in the conditions of Western Australia than most other grasses. So, so that's 40 years we've been working together. 40 years is a long time. I mean, when, we're, when mm. we're talking about the knowledge that you're seeking out and learning from as well, we're talking about an even longer <laughs> period of time. Well, that's right. I, I remember my dad, who was born in 1897, came here to visit us once in Western Australia. And my wife's father comes from Croatia, Yugoslavia, where he came. He didn't speak, he spoke hardly English. And he wasn't, he wasn't particularly knowledgeable in the way the father was. But when it came to gardening, Papa Jakobina knew the environment. He knew the soil, he knew the seasons. And he used to defer to my dad. My dad used to defer to him and say, Pop, Mr. Bell, Mr. Bell, you know... I know more than you about this particular land. Now imagine how much the first Australians knew about the land long before we came. So not to listen to them is just plain right foolish. I think I think where we should listen to the Aboriginals with regards to those six seasons is when it comes to fires and burning, um, they have a special way. They have that knowledge about how to burn, how to back burn, and they utilise those areas for, for the environment, for the gardening. So that they do have a lot of experience. Absolutely. 
do you think that somebody who's listening to this episode and, you know, sort of may have a bit of understanding about, you know, oh, fire can be good for the environment and good for plants, that they should go out and sort of try their hand at backburning and sort of burning land for regeneration? Or is this something that you're going to need a little bit of special training for? Oh, yeah, you just don't, you just don't light a match. You know, we're talking about small blocks. We're not talking about acreages. But uh, anyone who just thinks they know how to do it because they've heard someone say it's a good idea, they're not doing themselves any favour. If you want to study it, look up on the Google, look up on the internet, fire stick farming. I've read books, I think there's one of the greatest state by Bill Gammage. You can learn and understand why. And I've said to anybody, don't do anything you don't know the reason for and find out the best way to do it. Well, make friends with some Aboriginal groups. I, when, when, when I used to be the Chief Executive Officer at the Burnswood Park Resort, at an 18-year-old golf course and wonderful parks and gardens surrounding it, we had a couple of Aboriginals on the staff, and they were tremendous because they loved what they were doing. They weren't doing a job because they wanted to get paid at the end of the week. They were nurturing and caring for the plants, including the grass. They didn't, do what, they didn't want to see how quick they could mold the oval. They wanted to see how well they could cut it. And they had a tremendous attitude. We can all, all learn from them. You can learn from everybody. And I'm saying you shouldn't undervalue people who, who've been here for, for centuries. And they should welcome us who came and unlocked to improve the country that we all share. I just want to add a quick little disclaimer here that neither you guys nor I are going to be held responsible for anybody who goes out there and tries their hand at burning. Like this is not, this is, it's not something that's just simple because a lot can go wrong. Obviously there's a safety issue and then there's also, you know, plant care issue. You know, if you're living in a certain part of Australia, that part may not have been burnt in the past. Well, I would make it abundantly clear that nobody should try to match or set light to any bit of land unless they've got permission and they know exactly what they're doing. Yeah. So we're just talking about the historical aspect of what First Nations people did and no way are we encouraging or suggesting yeah. that anybody else should try it. But for registered, study it, learn about it. What do you think about that, Tony? With regards to the burning, yeah, I agree 100%. You shouldn't, put, you shouldn't light a match for, for any particular reason unless you know exactly what you're doing or you got permission, 100%. Um, with regards to, to fires, um, this is where grass, turf comes as a very important factor. Um, it, it actually helps to prevent a lot of these fires because somebody that's got a lovely surrounding area of grassed areas, there's less likelihood that you're going to have any major issues with your fires if they did occur around your area. So if somebody accidentally did something, then there's a good chance that the grass will protect you. That's that's well and truly been proven. Um, but definitely, you do not go just lighting a match to uh, to go and uh, prepare your soil. I mean, uh, unless you're super experienced. Totally agree. And you're talking about a well-maintained lawn there that's going to sort of prevent fire, not something that's overgrown and not being maintained well. That's correct. Something that's been fairly well maintained. For example, if there happened to be a fire 
uh, surrounding a golf course or a house or a, or a turf farm, there's a good chance that you've got survival because you've got a nice greenery area where there's less chance that you, you're going to cause any issues. Uh, maintained is a good word. Yeah, maintained. Big difference between an open grassy field and a maintained area of grass. I mean, you're not going to be able to sort of get the same economic values, the same recreational values, the same fire safety values from an unkept lawn. That's correct. So, guys, I want to switch up a little bit here. Let's say one of our listeners would like to install their own lawn they know that there are a few different approaches that they can take. I mean, they can seed the lawn, they can plant runners, and they can also sort of install their own turf strips. Can you walk us through some of those different methods? I'll go first. The best and most economical way is to lay instant turf. After the soil has been properly prepared, you lay the best variety of grass for your particular purpose. It's done in the day. And it's, there for, and it's there forever. You know, whereas if you plant stolons, sure they'll grow, but you've got to give more water more frequently over a long period of time until the grass gets established. You can, there's a, a, a different method you can use. You can buy a turf and you can cut it into long strips with a, with a saw and then cut it into plums with a tomahawk and plant those plums about 150 millimetres apart. But they, again, they'll take a season to grow and weeds go in between in the meantime. So for the cost of, of the best turf, it's by far the best way to go. If you're talking about uh, repairing ball patch in the middle of the lawn, you might have had some oil spilled on it or some petrol spilled on it or might have been compacted by two vigorous games. Well, then you can go to the edge of your lawn and you see where the runners have started to creep to the edge just with a pair of scissors cut them off, put them in a bucket, soak them in sea salt or something similar, and then plant those into the area. Just lay them over the sort of bare area, lay them over, and then get a spade and just use the spade to poke them into the ground. And they'll very quickly heal over. That's the great advantage of the warm season. Stolen efforts and rise on just grasses. They are self-healing. So we've talked a little bit about the warm season grasses now what is the difference between a warm season grass and a cool season grass because i know it's not like obviously we've got hot areas and cold areas of australia and the world but they're actually quite different aren't they they are see warm season grasses are c4 whereas cool season grasses are c3 they require a lot more water and are more difficult to maintain but in places like canberra and tasmania and Goldman, you know, some seeded mixtures that contain a variety, a, different, a, a number of different varieties are very good. But we're not, they're, they're rare in West Australia. When I, when I first started in business in Perth 60 years or so ago, there was a grass seed mixture called Australian Blend, which contained Kentucky bluegrass, had some coach grass in it, and some fescues, some chewies, and some rye, and some and finely dry grass. And they looked great for the first season, but they didn't overwinter, didn't, they didn't do well when the weather became hot. Okay. And now no one uses them. Right. Now no one uses them because they're not successful. It used to be when water wasn't rationed and you can 
water as often as you like for as long as you like, you can keep them alive. But nowadays, if you seeded a lawn with a seed mixture containing various grasses, you'll find that cooch is now overtaken and is dominated. There are some exceptions in Tony's turf farm. It's called Permanent Brook. And uh, another turf, uh, he's very important to the turf industry because he's, he's very close to Perth, very close to the dense housing developments. Another one is Lovegrove Turf Farms. Dick Lovegrove and his team for a long time have been very successful, just about 10k south of Perth, east, east, southeast of Perth. But they've recognised that grasses don't like mono stand, they like a mixture of grasses. So by observing what's happening in his own property, he's seen the cooch grass and the kaikuri grass blend harmoniously together, compatible with each other. And he's produced a turf now called Kaiki Kuch. Which is very good. But where you get too much sun, where you get heat coming off the brick paving surrounding the lawn, the kutch tends to dominate. But overall, there's an there's a, an interwoven sword of kutch and kaikiri leaves growing together. And of course, it's mowed, it's turned over two or three times a year, so it's always young grass, freshly developed, which has been cultivated in situ to suit local conditions. Another grass that he grows is called bison. Softleaf buffaloes are very popular. The first of the so-called softleaf buffaloes was velvet. The velvet had a softer leaf, easier to play on. Children weren't allergic to the, to, to the grass. And that was a forerunner of things like palmata, sapphire, sawwater, and a host of other ones. But you imagine over 25 years, of Dick Lovesdorf's staff on the, on the turf farm, cutting and rolling, cutting and rolling. The grass becomes so fine. It's a beautiful grass for where buffalo is desired, where you have more shade. So that's the sort of thing that happens naturally. In nature, it happens naturally. I'm just telling you about the Wacker, you know, the West Australian Cricket Authority's ground in East, East Perth. It was planted originally with kutch grass, it was mowed, mowed pretty well. But in the centre field where the wicket was, where you had the infield, it was being watered with skim water and being given plenty of water in the, in the making of the wicket. And there were the rolling, the grass naturally mutated and became very fine. And that's what happened to grass like wintergreen and legend and Windsor green. These single strains of kutch were very good, you know, developed. But... Um, the best of them all from, for these small situations that we are focused on is Sandrana because it's a hybrid cross between South African superfine kutch and the fine kutch in, in Western Australia. So it's got hybrid vigour, requires less sunlight, and properly managed requires less mowing, watering, and fertilising. I think getting back to your question, you're getting back to what you were discussing early with regards to the seeds. Um, in the cool season line. One of the biggest issues that we have in Western Australia is um, dealing with water. And this is where the cooch grasses, the buffaloes, the kites, they, they, they become more dominant and more efficient because they have the capacity to, to hold up even under stress with when, when you, we do get some restrictions with regarding to water, whereas with the cooler season grasses, um, unfortunately, 
they, they are unable to hold up because they do require constant water and especially like on the if you're on a golf green for example if if it's a hot day and it's a bent bent green regardless of which variety then it doesn't take very long for them to spoil but if it was a warm season grass uh, given the same amount of water they will still survive under stress so they do have advantages over cool season grasses cool season grasses are good if if they're able to receive their water tall fescue does quite well in melbourne if you've got just sort of like a bare patch you don't want to have to go and get runners out of your kaikuyu and um uh, yeah i find that one good at least it holds the soil together until your sort of kaikuyu runners will, will take over that patch as a maintenance gardener sometimes you know the the customer doesn't necessarily want to pay you to go and be cutting out uh, runners and, and transplanting they just want to pay you to sort of uh, put a few holes in the uh, to just sort of like uh, fork up the fork up the the soil just a little bit fork up that clay and then just chuck some seeds down and maybe just put a top a little bit of topsoil on top and um you know you, you can tell the difference between the two different grass types so um, you have to sort of weigh up because some benefits there yeah i think Nick was probably right when he said the best way might be to go and get some of those runners and transplant them into that patch. Well, that's so, one way. The other, the other way, the other way is to turf it. So you'd imagine right. you've got a roughly, a rough, roughly half of a square meter that needs to be replaced. You can buy turf. Just put the turf on top of where the damaged area is. And then with a sharp spade, go around the perimeter, and then cut two or three, two, two, about fifty mil of uh, the bare soil away and just patch it just like a like a patchwork quilt and with the with the same turf. So you made an instant repair. Right. How important is it to dig away that sort of first little bit of the topsoil before you transplant that turf? Why would you want to do that? Well it's very important because if if the turf if that turf has been stressed and it's basically wilted away for whatever reason then you're going to have to start with the thatch issue and other other issues associated with it. So it's it, everything is all about the base. So when whenever you put a brand new lawn in or you're or you're renovating a lawn, everything is to do about the base. So if you get the base correct, that's with the correct soil, with the correct products to put in the soil if required. It's everything is to do with the base, and then then it should work well later on. Yeah, Daniel, of those two methods, I must admit I prefer the stolenizing. Okay. Because when you're pushing in with the state, you're cultivating the earth, you're breaking the earth up, you're refreshing the soil, and then you, the runners will grow very quickly. But where the client wants it repaired, it's just like, uh, you know, carpet tiles, you put a new turf in. But before you lay the turf, you've got to do something about softening up the grass, the ground that it's going into. And not to mention as well that if you take a mower over a, a patch of lawn that you haven't dug in, you're going to scalp that part of the that turf you've just laid because it's going to sit a little bit higher than the rest of the lawn. Well, you use a spade or the or a special special bit of tool to tamp it down firmly. You know, professionals. That's 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 why people employ someone to do the job because they expect them to do it properly. Right. So you don't leave it proud where the mower is going to come and scalp it. You take enough earth away to accommodate the depth of the sod that you're going to put in, or the turf that you're going to put in. And when you place it in place, you tamp it down firmly with the back of the spade. 
so that it's certainly not proud. And there'll be different methods whether you're dealing with clay or with sand. Yeah, that's right. Here we've got sand. But you can amend sand. It's easier to amend sand than it is clay. You know, so we'll talk about that shortly. What a bit what solid amendments are appropriate in the sand of soil as a person we can explain it to you. Before we get there, Nick, I just wanted to touch on something that we have sort of talked about, but I wanted to specifically mention the term right plant, right place. Does this term that we've all heard about when we're gardeners, what, what role does that term play when we're dealing with turf? Well, if you've got too much shade for the warm for, for the cultures, you plant buffalo. If you haven't got enough sunlight, daylight, from the buffalo, you sow dichondrosy. So that's the right plant. You, you choose the right grass for the right environment that's going into. Another aspect is how heavy is the weight going to be? Do you have a kelpie puppy dog? Do you have a bigger dog? Does it gamble over the lawn? Do the kids go round and round on a totem tennis and, and compact the earth? So all, all of those things are, are considered here. If that's the case, you'd use cube or wintergreen kush or zoysia because it's got a massive underground rhizome system which quickly recovers. So they're about the only things you do. Have you got enough sunlight? How dense, how active is the plague going to be? How frequently are you going to cut it? So very much, very important to choose the right plan. Now, what I'll say here is if you're contemplating putting a new lawn in, go and see the nearest turf farm to where you live. Most of them have got display areas of different grasses and talk to the skilled staff on site about what grass you think you should have and let them explain to you why that not maybe the right choice. Remember that these people are growing the grasses that are best for their customers and they have an ever-going feedback from satisfied and some of dissatisfied customers so they know what they're talking about. So I hope that answers the question, Daniel. Yeah, it does. And I love that you've sort of mentioned there, go and have a chat to your professional turf people because they want to help you. They want you to be a satisfied customer. They want that five-star review. They want you to go and tell your mates, go and visit this turf farm. Do, do it local. Come to the person close to you. Unless you want a grass that you've got to go to, you know, Dayton to get. If you if you if no one else grows Santa Ana, you want Santa Ana, you've got to come here. But I think beyond talking to the turf nurseries, turf nurseries in general, there's one here called near where we live called the Guildford Town Nursery. They have skilled horticulturists will help you design the landscape, you know, telling you which plant to plant where. You know, so use the right advice, but then you put your thumbprint on the work by making it your, making it your garden, your lawn, your plants, your vegetable garden, your rose garden, your special plant that evokes memories of love, family, people. And it's such a lot of fun. I mean, yeah. we talk about the throwaway society, but what better thing can you do in your life than make yourself at home with your own prop, your own land? I think when you do that, you start to understand why First Nations people have such a love for the life, love for the land. They belong to it, it belongs to them. Your own place, what to say in England, an, Englishman, an Englishman's home is his castle. And I'll tell you what, Australians are pretty house proud and proud of the property too. 
So I guess what soil amendments are generally appropriate for those sandy soils in Perth, guys? Well, look, that is the most important question to understand. You know, 90% of people do the wrong thing. They plant grass or they have turf laid on, on sand and it will not survive, particularly in the case of Buffalo and Queensland Blue, with just two waterings a week during the hot, during the hot parts of December, January and February. So you must put some kale and clay, some red sand, some loam, some soil conditioner in before you plant it. So I'll tell you a few. There are others, so I'm particularly anxious not to be biased towards one product or another, so I'll mention a few, but advise people to look, at on, to look on, the, on the net and see just what is available. But a couple of that, that I have had tremendous results with myself. This first is a company in Perth called the Green Life Soil Company, who makes soils to a recipe, not to a price. And their lawn concentrate is as good as you get. It's got kale and clay, it's got charcoal in it, it's got all sorts of nutrients to feed the microbes. But you've got to put it on fairly generously. You've got to put it on about, uh, you know, well, put it this way, if you've got a 100 mil depth of soil, of sand, you need to put a 25 mil layer of the lawn concentrate on top of that. And then with a rotary hoe or a similar implement, or a spade if you've got the time, incorporate into that top 400 mil. So your 400 mil root zone of the turf is a composite mixture of the lawn concentrate and the native sand that's there. And then you've got a perfect, perfect soil that will grow the grass and you'll use about half the water if you don't do it, half the water than you would if you didn't do it. And the grass will, will, will love you for it. Another one, not a great success, is soil solver. That's kale and clay. They talk about 50 kilograms to the square meter of a combination of soil solver clay plus, plus soil solver compost or, or dynamic lifter. So again, they're talking about a lot of material to physically change forever the sandy profile to make the sand a loam instead of sand. And there's a new product to be released soon in Perth called Mineral Magic. Now, I've just had a personal demonstration of this material and it's fascinating. The guy who's developed a, a company to mine in the northwest of this state showed me how at the correct rates mixed with sand, either bored-in sand or native sand, or even, in some cases, clay, you can absolutely change the physical construction of that soil profile forever. You need to put two, kilo, two kilograms a square metre. So you're talking about an average 70 square metre loan, you can do the math. You know, but it's, it's another great product. And there are others, so people can, can go to websites and search organic matter, they're three very good ones. And the soil amendments that you're using in Sandy Perth are not going to be the same sort of soil amendments that I would recommend for somebody in Templestowe, where I've been working sort of for a while, which has very heavy clay soils. I, I might suggest gypsum. Yeah, well, gypsum is a clay breaker. Very good for that purpose. And it is important to know what you've got. But the same thing applies. You want to plant a new lawn where, where you've got heavy clay soil. Go to the local turf farmer and find out what he does. Yeah. Go to the turf, the turf nursery, if you like, and find out what he, what he does. 
You can't grow grass and just clay, it gets too wet, doesn't like wet feet, but gypsum is a chemical that can change it. But I also think that that um, the one that I mentioned is good in clay as well. So you can do some research on mineral magic itself. It hasn't been released in Perth, but it's about to be. It's a biogenic amorphous silica. No, well, I've been speaking with Nick from Mineral Magic, and we're going to have him on the show. And I, oh, good. Yeah, so, and it's funny, we also have had Gavin Davis from Soil Solver and also Linda and Paul from Green Life Soil Co. on the show as well. So, Well, well, well that's good. Nick, Nick Clayton and I go back almost as long as Tony and I do. He's <laughs> called Nick Clayton and I, what would you say, I call him Junior, because my name is Nick as well. <laughs> so we, go, we go back a long time. And he wouldn't be doing this if he didn't believe it. He's a very successful turf manager in his own right, as well as a very good turf industry. You know, he's, he's for a long time sold turf machinery. He understands turf and what's needed to make it grow. So he's putting a lot of effort into this one. I've told you about the other ones, and there are others. So Daniel, I had great pleasure in looking at some of your previous episodes. So I listened to the one with uh, Gavin Davis, and I listened to, listened to the one with Darren Cena. And Darren Cena is another name, you know, because when you talk about landscapers, Darren is one of the is one of the only people in Perth who will design the landscape for you, helping you to choose plants that you that you like guaranteed to grow where you want them to grow. He will also design and install the watering system and he will supply and lay the turf as well. So he's a very good guy. So it's, it's, I recommend him very hardly. Yeah, I'd like our listeners to go and have a listen to that one as well. But he was speaking about reticulation in that episode. And I'd be remiss if I didn't give my business partner, Ben Sims, a bit of a plug too because... Yeah, he's, he's a pretty great guy as well for anybody in Perth who's looking for a landscaper to sort of get on board to give him a hand and I'm sure he'll listen to your needs and give you an absolute ripper of a garden at the end of the day, which is what we all want. Yeah, well, that's good to know. Well, our members have known to Ben. We've had a coffee together and we've talked on the phone and, of course, he's here with us today. And he's, he's got a good name, a good reputation. So, yeah, I'd urge people to use Ben's landscape services as well yeah just google ben's gardening in perth or even perth gardeners and scroll down to you find ben sims's facebook page or his website and you can look at his um blog post as well because he's got a lot of fantastic information in there that i've sort of learned a lot from personally about perth landscaping perth plants and what you need to be thinking about in that environment what do you reckon uh some of your favorite tips for home gardeners that you know, maybe they're looking to set up their irrigation system for their lawns and they don't necessarily want to waste a lot of water and they don't want to waste a lot of money and time redoing things more than once or they don't want any headaches, essentially. What are your recommendations there? Well, I, I personally would go to a somebody like, uh, well, they used to be called Total Irrigation or in the old days, and Hoyle, somebody that actually has the products and I'll be taking my house plan to these places. Uh, the, I think uh, at the moment uh, totals have now been taken over by nutrient, but there are a number of a number of reticulation places that you can go to now. Take your plan of your property. They'll give you good advice, and they'll have it set up properly for you. 
There are a number of water-saving sprinklers nowadays. There's also some very good controllers. There's so many new products that you can get on today's market and that actually are not quite as expensive as what you may think. So the main thing is go and get the correct advice from the correct people and in the end you'll end up saving water, not using water. So definitely go and see somebody that has the knowledge and the technology in the, in the gardening sprinkler department. Yeah, do it properly the first time. Very important. You can't guess how to you can't guess how to lay a watering system. Nobody would wire their own house for electricity to reticulate electricity around the premises. I would certainly advise people to go and see. And the Water Corporation is very good. They register, endorse waterwise irrigators, waterwise designers, so people can look up that those websites and find out who the nearest authorised certificated specialists and go and see them. But when, when it comes to a small pocket-sized handkerchief, you know, pocket handkerchief-sized lawn in these big houses and small blocks, I am intending now to tell people, don't worry about the irrigation. Get into the house. Get your lawn planted. Get your 50 square metres of turf laid on, pre on carefully prepared soil and then get a handheld hose wand. And it only takes 30 minutes, less than 30 minutes, about 25 minutes according to my calculation, to thoroughly soak that, that lawn area with the 10 millimetres of water that you're allowed. And when you're doing that, you can watch, you can watch the grass grow. You know, it's, it becomes part of you. So I'll certainly, and then once you've got your grass grown and you've been to the nursery and you've got your garden layout, you can then go to the waterwise irrigator and they can design a system for you. They'll test your water pressure and flow and they'll design a system which is perfect for you. But I wouldn't rush into it. I'll get into the house, plant your lawn, hand water it, think carefully about where your swimming pool is, swimming pool, trampoline, your driveway, whatever, hard landscaping, your vegetable gardens, which might have a drip system. So do all of those things before you go and get the professional advice. But for some people with a bigger block, or for some people who want to improve their water system, by all means, go and see the specialist and get the advice. Do it right the first time. Yeah. And I love that advice of getting out there and watering your garden at least when the lawn's still young, for a few reasons. One, because it's your lawn. It's a beautiful thing. You want to get your shoes off and get your feet in the ground and feel it and experience it. And that's well, the only thing about 70 square metres, you know, about the size of, a, of a, a large kitchen, about the size of the driveway going, going up to your drive. So it's not a big area. Take your lesson. Try, I've done the calculation. Take you 23.3 minutes, I think, to apply the 10 millimetres that you need and it really stamps your not just your thumbprint but it stamps your heart and soul into, into your beloved garden I think the only other advice that I could possibly give is to look with your own eyes so if you see there's an issue with regards to your lawn from the beginning because everything's from construction it's important to get it right like we said earlier get it right the first time but if, if there are extra winds extra hot days, then just keep an eye on your new lawn and, and make sure that if you have to, go out there and use your hand water. Totally. 
And watch if the water's running down the road. Like, is the water hitting the soil and rolling off? Is the soil receiving it? Is the water rolling down the hill to the bottom of the grass? Is the bottom of the hill greener than the top of the hill? All those things you can sort of notice. You have to do some coring then, but that will never happen if you prepare the soil properly in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you rarely need to use the wetting agents as long as you prepare the soil properly in the first place. But if you look at some of the maths, for every square metre of lawn in Western Australia, you need 10 litres of water per square metre. One, twice a week. So, but when you do the sums, that only costs about $2.57 per week. So I haven't got time today to, to do that mathematics, but you can imagine if you draw a square, if you had a box one metre by one metre, it takes you 10 litres of water to give a depth of 10 mil in that area. So that's why I'm only explaining that because it tells you how important it is to spray the soil properly. You're never going to get runoff either laterally, below the surface, subsurface runoff, or ponding. The grass is going to drink the water that you want and it's going to precipitate the root zone as the grass requires it. So you've got nice dry grass, moist subsurface root zone and strong, healthy grass. Totally. So guys, I want to ask you a couple of questions now about how we're feeding our lawns. I know that we've already talked about it, but what are your thoughts on organic fertilisers versus chemical ones? Oh, I think organic fertilisers are more more for the in the beginning of the lawn, for the planting, the initial planting. I mean, that's where organics come into their own. Uh, I think that's that's important and very good to have organic fertilisers in the beginning. Uh, you follow it up later on with some non-organic fertilisers. And I think the secret is when you do follow up your fertilising, it's little and often, not big amounts in one time, but little and often, which is very similar to what you should be doing when it comes to the maintenance of your mowing. You should be doing it frequently so fertilizing is very similar and it's little and often and you'll get healthy results rather than having having these great big growth spurts and and then you find that all of a sudden you've got to go and mow that lawn that's all of a sudden grown an extra five mil high if it's just little and often fertilizers uh, you'll, you'll get a great result yeah i think that's great advice and I think a lot of people are quite afraid of artificial fertilisers. Why do you think that artificial fertilisers are something that shouldn't be that we shouldn't be afraid of? Mm. Well, let me let me talk about it. I, I've done a lot of research over the years on fertilisers. Some are better than the others. The modern story is fertilisers are very efficient because they feed along gradually over a two to three month period releasing just the amount that the grass needs to make active, active growth. But I'm concerned about the high cost of producing those fertilizers and then the enormous cost of, of getting them here. So I think that fertilizer turf growers grow are differently. They've got to produce a crop. So I like the organic approach. I like to think, okay. that, I, I think, I like to think Daniel, that I had a, a light bulb moment when I realized if you fed your lawn four times a year, with small quantities of compost, 
you would give the organic ideal uh, nutrient that the lawn needed. You'd be slowly releasing the nutrients and adding organic matter. So that was when I was thinking about putting about five mil of compost on four times a year. That was my light bulb moment. But my LED moment was when I realised that the lawn itself was a gigantic compost heap. The, the, the stuff left behind with the mower, some of the roots of the grass every spring and every autumn die and they decompose naturally in the soil. So the best thing to do is to feed the soil, let the grass grow strong and healthy and feed it with, with granulated poultry manure four, time, four, four times a year so that over the course of the year you supply it with the recommended amount of nitrogen the grass needs to maintain strong, healthy growth, and then let the lawn be a never, you know, producing factory, producing carbon. And so there's one, there's one I one I've mentioned, a, a premium premium granular lawn fertilizer called Blade Runner. So it's a very good choice of organic lawn fertilizer. That's interesting. I think that there's a whole episode there, sort of speaking about. Um, you know, fertilizers, just, just different types as well, because I'm not, I'm not personally um, opposed to, uh, you know, artificial synthetic fertilizers, you know, in the right circumstances. Scots ones are very good. We're fortunate in West Australia, we've got two or three companies, Bailey's Fertilizer Family, Rich Grow, been, been in Perth for over 100 years, and there's one called Troforte. Now, these people don't make fertilizers just because they want you to over-fertilize the lawns. They have the correct NPK balance, nitrogen, phosphate, and potash, and the right amount of, of trace elements to supply the grass that it needs. In the case of the Troforte, they even got live microbes in it. So they're very good fertilizers, not just made, but you've got to be careful not to put them on in excess. And you don't need to put them, generally the, lay, the, the application rate mentioned on the labels, or generally the maximum you should put on. So I favour dividing that into, dividing the recommended quantity into four. So over the course of the year, you supply the grass with all the nutrients that it needs, without stimulating excessive grow, growth, which only gets removed in clippings, often carted to the tip. So if you've got a nice, strong, healthy grass that's growing, of already high and low peaks of fertility, and grass cycling the nutrients back into the turf, that's a great way to go. And you, so I'm talking about, I'm favoring the organic, but the synthetic chemical fertilizers properly used do a good job as well. I'm glad to hear that you are also open-minded to different ways of doing things. Tony, would you agree with those recommendations? I do. Um, I've always believed, as I said earlier on, that um, with the correct NPK, the right fertiliser and the trace elements and all the other bits and pieces that you require for the lawn, but it's little and often. So in, in, in as, as we just talked then, it was recommended four times per year, but uh, that, is a, that is a good rule of thumb, four times a year. What you don't want is basically, as I said earlier on, in putting the fertilisers, whether it's organic or non-organic, putting it on twice a year or once a year, but instead of putting, say, for example, over a lawn, you need to put five kilos over a specific area of lawn, um, 
putting 20 kilos on that area because you're not you're not doing any any benefits to that lawn you're creating more damage than you are good so it's very important to divide it up and spread it out i mean we have in our system as we said before there was four seasons in aboriginal season it's six so you know whether you do it four times a year or six times per year um that's your choice but the thing is don't just put make it too heavy too often because it's not going to do it any better. You're not gaining anything. So little and often, as I said before, but with the correct fertilisers, using the correct balance and complement that with watering, the correct amount of water to use on your lawn because part of the problem that we have as well is that sometimes people have a tendency to go and fertilise their lawn thinking they're doing it the world of good and instead of putting a decent the, the correct requirement of water to wash it in, they're putting less water and they wonder why the leaf burns. So it, that's why it's important just to, to do it little and often so you're not over-fertilising, putting the correct amount of fertiliser on and then complement it with water and obviously frequent mowing if it's possible. Now, earlier on we were discussing about, like, for example, I think you're part of it, lawn mowing contractors or... Jim's mowing or whoever you happen to be. Um, if you have a larger area and you, you have the Jim's mowing or the contractors, if if the local householder has an opportunity to have his own mower but he doesn't always have the time to mow every time, uh, he can do it in between perhaps just to, to assist because quite often you look around and you'll see, as discussed earlier with the, with the heights, You'll go past and you'll see some lawns are two or three uh, or 50 to 75 millimetres high before they get mowed, and that's not a good thing. So um, the local householder, if they do have, as we discussed earlier, their own machine, they can assist a contractor as well as themselves if they don't have the time to do it constantly. So there's, there's, there's room for everybody, so you can generate the employment for both parties. Totally. And you might find that maybe you don't want to whip the edges, you want to leave that for the contractor and you just want to mow and you're happy to leave the edges sort of between each mow and that's fine too. Yeah, that's perhaps because maybe you either don't want to do it or you don't have the time to do it, but it's always nice to do it. But generally, like we said earlier, that if you've got the correct machinery to do it properly, then it's easy to do. But... Um, Getting out and about on your lawn, there's nothing wrong with that because it's it's healthy to see a nice green environment out there and it maintains and it gives you a healthy feeling. If, if it looks nice, it feels right and it's doing the good things to yourself and the environment. But share, I believe in sharing. Share, share the workload. Share the workload. <laughs> yeah. Well, Danny, I like, like to talk about lawn mowing too. Because it's such an important thing, it's not just the removal of surplus growth, it's a means of fine turf production. So you've got a choice between cylinder mowers or rotary mowers. The cylinder mowers definitely produce a better finish, more like cutting the grass with a sharp scissor, as against a sharp knife rotating. But modern rotary mowers are so designed that they're pretty good too. So in some cases they're preferred one, but for the small home garden, 
a cylinder mower is, is the best the best means of mowing because the cut lower and the more efficiently you disperse the clippings over the grass. But Daniel, not everyone can buy an electric motor car, but everybody can buy an electric lawnmower. And these battery-powered lawnmowers that are available now are just stunning. Well worth the investment of having one and being your own greenkeeper, perhaps sharing it with a neighbour. There's one called Liberty 43, 17 inches wide, so it's got a, a battery. It'll, it'll mow for 40 minutes, so you'll always cut the lawn in that time. And I recommend people go and have a look at the YouTube picture of that machine working. It's called Alice, A-L-L-E-T-T-S. It's an absolutely superb machine that lasts for a lifetime. You can even fit into it different things like a vertical blade, a, a stripping blade, a scarifying blade. But people need to look at the website, look at the uh, YouTube video of an Alice mower, see for themselves. It won't be available on the spring, so there's plenty of time to do that. So what do you do now if you're going to cut with a cylinder mower? Well, if it's, small, if it's a small 40 square metre, 50 square metre, I recommend a, a walk-behind, people-powered cylinder mower, about 18 inches wide, heavy enough to sit into the grass, not right over the top, and then cut the grass perfectly in a self-sharpening. And they're available from, from, from most good lawn mowing shops. You know, specialist mower shops that service and sharpen as well as, as, well as uh, sell the machines. So that's a, a great machine. They're probably available now, but you need to go to a dedicated mower shop. Now, if it comes to petrol-driven machines, there's a few in Perth that are really worthwhile. There's the Mow Master. They have an 18-inch and a 22-inch series, superbly designed and built, heavy duty for home lawn mower. There's an Arro. You need to look on the website for Arro because they went out of business for a while, but Manager Mowers, which is about 100k south of Perth, are making them now. And they're a very good mower too. Well, that's it for, for road cylinder mowers. But look, I had a demonstration the other day of a Toro V60 recycler, battery-driven rotary mower, which was by far the best that I've ever seen. Whisper quiet, got a mulching facility, self-propelled, it matches, it, it matches to your own walking, walking speed. It doesn't leave a scrap behind. A fairly expensive, about $1,399, but lasts forever, 22 inches wide. Now they're available in Perth from a company called T-Quip, and I recommend people have a look at them on the website because it absolutely stunned me. The, the quality of cut was excellent. Ease of operation was child's play, but the professional finish was outstanding. So that's the battery-driven 60-volt, 56-centimeter recycler lawnmower available from T-Quip. But the principle of mowing is never to take up more than a third of the leaf. Very few people would pay gym or pro turf or VIP to come twice a week during the summer. But you need to do that if you want to have a suburb lawn. And for a, for a 70 square meter from uh, lawn from these big houses, small blocks, it's a 10 minute job and one that really gives you pride of ownership of the lawn.
And look, if you're not going to sort of cut the edges when you're um, going to mow between your contract is coming, you have to like just learn to live with the fact that it's going to look like it has a bad haircut until the pros come in. So it might be worth actually learning how to use a brush cutter. I think that's the best way. Or else use a spit the shop and stay. But I like the idea of the battery, battery operated. They're light. You can get some quite light ones out there that aren't as heavy as those old petrol machines that sort of contractors like me are used to using. The contractors are using the, the battery driven ones. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. These days, in fact, a lot. I've seen a lot of companies using the electric ones. But, uh, apart from burning the petrol, you know, there's, there's uh, analysis done about the amount of pollution caused by petrol mowers. But it's just so quiet. I mean, you're not going to wake up your neighbour on a Sunday morning if you're mowing your lawn with a battery-driven mower. But uh, they're wonderful. I'll tell you, I was blown away with the demonstration of that torrent. It was just superb. There are others. So people need to, to Google battery-powered electric mowers and have a look to see what's available. But go to your local mower specialist shop. Like we talked before, talk to the expert. Tell them what you want. They'll tell you which is the best machine they've got for them. And most of them, you know, you can pay them off. Have them have them for yourself. They're easy to store. So that's the most important. As I said, mowing is not just the removal of surplus clippings. It's absolute means of producing fine too. Well, that's an organic fertiliser that those grass blades you're mincing up and pushing down beneath the lawn surface. Yeah. Remember that... Um, yeah. Mowing never take up more than a third. And I don't pick the clippings up. And that's the yeah. clippings which are 30% moisture, or 10% moisture and 30% of the last mm. fertilizer applied. Return them to the to the lawn, into the soil. I call it grass cycling, and it's a very mm. efficient way to do it. A little compost, it's a green manure. It'll compost down into the soil, feed the soil microbes, as you say. Yeah. Minerals, all the rest. It's what they want to eat. Yeah. Absolutely. It's microbes like to eat plants and poo and animal carcasses and stuff like that. Just think about how nature works and that's how we need to be treating our gardening. I think we're singing from the same song sheet, Danny. A lot of things that you're saying I wholeheartedly agree with. Yeah. It goes back to living with nature, not trying to change it. Mm. Feed the soil so the soil looks after the plants. Reduce to a minimum the inputs that are necessary, but above all, prepare the soil properly and choose the right grass. Make sure you've got the means of watering it and mowing it as frequently as is necessary. Totally agree. So guys, I'd like to speak a little bit more about some of those Aussie companies that are basically doing really good things within the turf area. Can you guys tell us some of your favourite products or services out there with regards to turf, please? Uh, there's a lot of, there are a lot of good, lot of good companies out there. I mean, there were, some were mentioned earlier on, like uh, Rich Grow, Bailey's. Uh, I've mentioned before. If you're looking on the other side, there's so many companies out there now with in the soil amendment side and organics. Uh, as far as sprinklers and that go, I think I mentioned them earlier, like uh, Nutrient, who have taken over from Totals, um, WaterWise. There are so many of those companies there. It's just a matter of, as we mentioned earlier, just looking up and Googling um, 
who's important to you and you're local. If, if it's possible, try and get somebody local because you're helping the work, the, the work place. You're helping your local, your local person that's around the corner that um, will also return the compliment and help you. So there are there are another. There's so many. There's, I mean, this nutrient now, for example, they they've taken over a number of companies. Um, used to be like Merco. I mean, they're part of them. Um, there are so many. There are so many out there companies now that are very very good. Lawn mowing, as far as lawn mowing goes, I mean, places like Still, they operate a lot of good equipment. Um, then you have your, your, your local, like T-Quip, you've got uh, Toro. You also have if, uh, Macintosh. You, there are so many co- companies out there that are, are willing to assist you. It's just a, the other thing is, of course, is affordability, but shop around, look around. Yeah, I agree with that. Look nationally, and I think there's a couple of companies that really stand out. And one is Hoselink. Hoselink produces a, a, a range of handheld hoses, wonderful hoses and hose reels. And people need to, to go to their website, website, Hoselink. They've got a very good catalogue. You can easily look at their whole range. But the one I like is the hose one that fits on the end of the hose and it delivers water. That's how I calculated. You need 25 minutes to water a 70 square meter lawn. So hose link is a definite plus for me internationally. And what Tony mentioned, still a family-owned company. I've got an excellent range of lawn mowers and lawn care and garden products. And most of the good specialty lawn mowing shops will also carry still products as well. So they're two national ones that I strongly recommend. When it comes to local ones, and I'm talking about the region I live in, Tony's Turf Farm, Permanent Brook Turf, and Love Groves, because they're local too, they're just about 10k east of the Greenwich Highway. There's a number of farms around here. But uh, as Tony's telling me, there are a number of, I'm not picking just those, I'm saying, but wherever you live, look up lawn and turf supplies, find the turf farm close to you, go and see them, take your shoes off, Shook your bare feet through the grass, find out which one, which one you like the best, and then talk to their specialists about what, which one is best to fit your requirements, and you'll be very happy that you did so. Absolutely agree, and do a little somersault in the grass too. Just get yourself a, a little bit itchy, because sometimes grasses can actually get you a little bit itchy if you uh, yeah, sort of get your body on there. Not with Santa Not with Santa Ana. Santa Ana's not bad on that one. So I haven't actually come into contact with that one. So I, I don't know if that's just because it's not available over here or if it doesn't do well. I'm in Queensland at the moment. I've been in Melbourne for a long time, for the last five years. But uh, No, Santa Ana is very available in, in, in Western Australia. And Anco in South Australia promote and use it for a lot of purposes. I'm sure if you Google Santa Ana, you'll find places in every state. Okay. The main ones I've dealt with in my sort of gardening life have been Cooch, Buffalo, and Kaikuyu. And that's specifically Sir Walter Buffalo, usually. Yeah, but a, pro- a lot of people would just classify Santa Ana as Cooch. Okay. But it's not, it's distinctly, it's distinctly different. But I'm sure, I'm sure, I know Anko in South Australia. Okay. Maybe I've been calling it something else. Not to be mistaken with Blue Cooch, which is Queensland Blue. 
Guys, I always like to ask our guests one very open-ended question at the end of each episode, and that's, is there anything else that you'd like the listeners to know about? Uh, good question. <laughs> I, think we've, I think we've basically covered it, but um, I think the, the most important thing uh, in the overall picture is that trust, trust the lawns, whichever one you decide to pick. I mean, obviously we've uh, favoured a little bit towards Santa Ana because it is a beautiful lawn, but just basically have a look at your, your situation. Look, look where you live, how you live, what you want in life, how you feel comfortable, and you'll find that with regards to especially a lawn, you'll find that you'll be so happy at the end of it because it's going to give you a better way of life. It's going to make your house far more valuable because if you take a picture of before, before and after a lawn is planted and it doesn't matter what, what the cost of the property is, whether it's a million, $10 million property or a, a $400,000 property, once you see that greenery in front of it, complemented by some lovely plants as well, the correct ones in, for, the, for the area. I think it's, it's important to think careful and choose carefully about your products, your lawn, your water, your mowers, your fertilisers, all the things that are associated with it. But I go back to the beginning and state that the most important thing that you do in with anything, and including building a house, and that is the base, the construction. Get it right, do it correctly, and you what you you you'll you'll live to enjoy it, not regret it. Totally agree. What about you, Nick? Do you have anything else that you'd like the listeners to know about? Well, you've asked to recommend a charity or advocate for change in the world. Daniel, I firmly believe the best thing that we could possibly do for Australia is to sign the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Break, integrate with First Nations people. Don't try and reconcile. We're never unreconciled. Integrate with them and move forward together, utilising each other's special skills and specialised knowledge to make this great country even better. Thank you. And... There will be links in the show notes for our listeners to check out a lot of what we've talked about. I would hesitate to say everything, but there'll be links to all of the different types of grasses, all of the brands that we've talked about, and there will also be a link to the Uluru Statement from the Heart as well. You can view the show notes by going to plantsgrowhere.com, clicking on the podcast page, selecting this episode, and then you'll see on the podcast player there's a little lowercase i information sign, and you can click all of the links from our website. Depending on where you're viewing, you may not be able to click links, and that's just down to a technological thing. I think that it's outrageous in this day and age that some platforms don't have clickable links, but, hey, this is where we are. And, yeah, so that's just the way it is. You have to go to the website for the only reliable way to see clickable links. Guys, thank you so much for coming on the show. What a fantastic episode on smart lawn care. I think that our viewers are going to learn a lot from this episode and maybe there might be a little bit more to it than what they first thought. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Daniel. It's been a real pleasure yeah. to talk with Tony, who we've worked together for 40 years. We don't work together now, but there's a time where we were 
saw each other every day, and it's just delightful for me to sit and talk to him about a subject we both love, and to share that information with your listeners. I'm just sorry that we can't have a televised podcast. It would be nice to be able to see people asking questions. Yeah, maybe in the future. I would like to do some live stuff in the future. There's some sort of exciting new technology coming out, especially the one on Twitter. There's uh, Twitter spaces that are coming out. But, yeah, there will be an audio um, platform on Twitter soon where we can, yeah, answer live questions, and I think that's going to have a lot of value for our listeners there. Thank you again, guys. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Really, Really enjoyable experience. Yeah, thanks a lot. Bye, Daniel. Again, I do apologize for the audio quality on my end of this conversation. I hope you are still able to find value in this episode with two of Western Australian's turf legends. If you haven't listened to our three-part mowing series, go back and listen to episodes 8, 9 and 10. You can also listen to episodes 30 and 31 with Paul and Linda from Green Life Soil Co. and my conversation with Gavin from Soil Solver in episode 24. Subscribe to this podcast to make sure you don't miss out on any industry-relevant horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening episodes.